Welcome to Nancy's Bookshelf, a weekly program of conversations with North State and national writers from North State Public Radio. Now here's your host, Nancy Wickman. My guest, Steve Leader, inspires his readers to examine their lives and turn them into something meaningful for generations to come. The title of his most recent book is For You When I'm Gone, 12 Essential Questions to Tell a Life Story. Steve Leader is the senior rabbi at Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles. After receiving a degree in writing and graduating cum laude from Northwestern University and studying at Trinity College, Oxford University, Rabbi Leader received a master's degree in Hebrew letters in 1986 and rabbinical ordination in 1987 from Hebrew Union College. Among his five books are two bestsellers, More Beautiful Than Before, How Suffering Transforms Us, and The Beauty of What Remains. Rabbi Steve Leader, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, it was a pleasure reading your book. And um, why don't you start by telling us how you organized it? Uh, The book is organized around 12 questions that when my editor asked me how I came up with them and in in the particular order in which they're presented in the book, I half-jokingly said to her, 35 years and 15 minutes. <laughs> I remember that. That was memorable that uh, you have 35 years' experience as a rabbi. And so when you sat down to write these questions, it only took you 15 minutes to do Exactly that. right, because these are the questions that I have been asking families for 35 years when I sit down with them after the death of their loved one to prepare them for the funeral to enable them to begin to heal through storytelling and to enable me to create a eulogy for this person that gets to the truth of the person's life, not the facts, right? An obituary tells us the facts, but the facts really don't teach us anything. You know, the fact that I was born in St. Louis Park, Minnesota in 1960 doesn't really tell you much about me. So my job in what clergy call an intake meeting, is to get to the truth of a person's life. So these questions are in a very deliberate order, and they're meant to help our story unfold. And the book's purpose is twofold. Number one, it is meant if you, uh, if you ask and answer these questions honestly, vulnerably, truthfully, you will have all the raw material you need to create what I call an ethical will. An ethical will is a document that bequeaths to our loved ones something they will need and want much more than our stuff after we die. What they'll need and want is our love, our guidance, our um, blessings for them, our hopes and dreams for them and the example of our lives for them to have and to hold. That's the first purpose of these 12 questions. The second purpose is that once confronted and answered in the moment, these answers will comprise what I consider to be a kind of MRI of the soul, something you can hold up to the light and then ask yourself, well, This is what I say is inside of me and in my heart and my soul. This is what I say my truth is. Am I living it? It's a real opportunity for a reevaluation, a realignment. And and in that sense, I think the book fits into this larger ethos going on in America right now, uh, semi-post-pandemic, which caused a lot of us, most of us, to ask these kinds of questions. Is this really how I want to live? Are these the people I really want to spend time on? Do I really want to uh, use my precious time to be sitting in traffic or wearing uncomfortable clothes or working all the time, being away from my family? At a job I might not like. Yes. And so this is all a part of that great reevaluation. So this book is for the here and now and for our loved ones when we're gone. Well, as I was reading it, I thought, she could be talking to me if that we're answering these questions 
these are things that I would say. I could just hear myself answering these questions. And I'll tell you, Rabbi Leader, I, you had me in tears from the very first page. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm glad it was moving. It, it, <laughs> and it, I really, I really hoped that it would be. And and you know, it's, the book's only been out for two days since uh, we were recording this, and the feedback has been really gratifying. There, we're we're really reaching into the truth of the matter for most people who have read it and, and their lives, and that's that's a gift for all of us. Well, I often notice that, um, say, people, I don't happen to have children, but I've had dogs, and conversation, of, well, the dog's been walked, the dog's been fed, and that's kind of the day-to-day conversation, and your questions cause us to really think about um, what we're doing with our lives, I, I think, and your answers, you ask a variety of people, who were the people you asked these questions of that you recorded their answers in your book? Well, i I promised anonymity to all of them, but I can give you a general sense. I reached out to about 40 people and posed these questions. And this group of 40 included every gender, um, Blacks, Asians, Latinos, Caucasians, and uh, Southeast Asians also. And it included Hindus, Muslims, Jews, and Christians and Buddhists. It included uh, people from the age of high school to mid 80s. It included people who were famous, some famous for wonderful things and some famous for terrible things. Uh, And it included sort of every spot on the socioeconomic spectrum. There are people answering these questions who change adults diapers in nursing homes for a living and a billionaire and what's powerful about that cohort when you start looking at the answers you learn something from the differences but we learn much more from the similarities the common denominators to the human experience that's where the real learning comes well and that's what rather surprised me that all these diverse backgrounds are the people you asked and yet I thought, my gosh, that I have that in common with these people who are so diverse. Yes. We're not really that diverse, really, are we? You know, all, <laughs> all human beings, all human beings are 99.8% genetically identical. Identical. Remind listeners, my guest is Rabbi Steve Leader, and he has written a book where he asks us these 12 questions and encourages us as readers to ask ourselves these questions. The title of his recent book is For You When I Am Gone, 12 Essential Questions to Tell a Life Story. And in chapter one, you ask, what do you regret? And man, as I was reading that, I could hear myself in so many of these responses. What did you find um, typical, for example? in that first chapter of what do you regret? What I found most interesting in terms of the the common denominator is that most people regret most, not something they did, but something they didn't do. The opportunity they didn't take, the words they didn't speak, uh, the trip they didn't go on, the job they didn't quit, uh, the relationship they waited too long to end, the help they didn't reach out for when they really needed it. Most people regret most what I would call the sin of omission. You know, there's sins of commission and sins of omission. And and I'm not using sin in, in, a, in a religious sense, uh, no, really just, just a kind of uh, uh, a mistake. And most people's mistakes they regret the most are mistakes of omission. Now, I often say to people, look, I've given up all hope of a better past, right? I think that's a very uh, healthy attitude when it comes to regret. (laughs) I have given up all hope of a better past. So ideally, why do I ask this question first? A few reasons. Number one, to answer that first question requires us to crack ourselves open and be vulnerable and humble. 
And, and if we get into that headspace, then the other 11 questions are also answered in that spirit. So that's the first thing. Yeah, one respondent said uh, uh, that he or she regretted making decisions out of fear and insecurity. And I think that's often why we regret these uh, sins, as you call them, of yes. omission, because um, we're afraid. We didn't, yes, yes. We're afraid. Yep. And sometimes I admire somebody who quits a job they don't like because that puts them in a very insecure position if they don't have any income. Mm -hmm. But I admire the courage that it takes to say, yes, this is not what I want to be doing with my life. Well, and you know, one of the other questions of the 12 is when was a time you led with your heart? Yes. Because you yes. will also find that when we make a fearless decision, when we lead with the heart, not that we completely subvert or subordinate our rational mind, that's, that's not the point. But when we lead with our heart, it almost always leads to the most important and um, meaningful decisions in our lives. So that's it. Now, the other thing about this question of regret as the first is it's also a way of indicating to the reader that this book is ultimately about the future, mm -hmm. not the past, that we, we can use the past to have a different and better future for us while we're here, and for our loved ones when we're gone. And, and so that's sort of the, the two-pronged agenda of that first question. Well, I used to be an academic advisor to college students, mostly freshmen. And they had this idea that, gosh, I've got to be careful what I choose as a major because I'm going to be stuck with that the rest of my life. Oh. Mm -hmm. And one of your respondents says that this widely held assumption, and it is widely held, I think, assumption that a profession once chosen must be lived throughout one's working days. And I think maybe young people, maybe it would take the pressure off their decision-making to say, okay, uh, this is the decision I'm making now um, from the best decision I can make at this time in my life, and I, I can change it. Absolutely. You know, every year, uh, with rare exception, we have a couple of elementary schools that we, uh, that we have and operate. Uh, two different neighborhoods in Los Angeles. And every year I give the graduation speech to our sixth graders. And one of the things I tell them is, your generation, and this is true, most of you are likely to live to be well over 100 years old. And you will begin your work careers somewhere in your mid-20s, which means you will probably be working for 60 years and you are likely to have not only two or three different professions but multiple jobs within each of those professions so loosen up enjoy the ride you know it's a buffet <laughs> it's a buffet for your generation enjoy it all and and you and i are essentially saying the same thing don't get locked in the past is not necessarily prologue we are not shackled by yesterday's ways. And I think that's one of the most important messages of this book. You can read that MRI of your life, and it can be a different picture in the future. My guest is Rabbi Steve Leader, and he's written a book for us, for when you are gone, well, when I'm gone, 12 Essential Questions to Tell a Life Story. And the first chapter is the question is, what do you regret? And there was a psychologist, you say in your book, there was a psychologist who asked 3,000 people, what do you have to live for? Yes. And very, very powerful, isn't it? Yes. It was. And the fact that 94% had a similar response. And what did yes. they say? They all said they're, you know, the question was, what, do you, what are you living for? And 94% of the respondents said they were living for something that was going to happen long into the future. They were living to pay off the mortgage. They were living for the kids to finish college. They were living to retire. Um, they were, you know, living anywhere but in the present. So 94% of us waiting, waiting for something while our lives trickle through the hourglass 
of our physical bodies. And I find that to be such a sad, sad fact. And we're not talking about 10%, 20%, 30%, 50%, 94% of us waiting. I found that surprising. Yeah, that um, 94% were waiting for something. Oh, well, I'm not doing that now, but when I retire, I'll That's play right. tennis and you or know, whatever it Kafka, is. Kafka said the meaning of life is that it ends. And that is really true. Once you wake up to the to the fact of finitude, the fact that your minutes are finite, there are no rollover minutes in life. Remember when cell phone plans had rollover minutes? There's no such thing in life. You don't get it back. And, and therefore, it is immeasurably, immeasurably priceless. Time, you can measure the value of most material things. You can never measure the value of time. It is a treasure beyond anything else we have. I think it's helpful to see how other cultures live because you mentioned some high school students who spent some time in a South American village mm -hmm. and they uh, came away saying, you know, those people would, uh, would sing and dance. Yeah, and, they were happier. They were happier. And you say, when's the last time most of us sang and danced? Yeah. Often, yeah. Or, or how often do we sit down together as a family to eat, to celebrate, to hug? Yep, exactly. And it's, you know, th there's this expression, which I, I love, which is standing knee deep in the river and dying of thirst. We're all, we're all standing knee deep in this river of life, of family, of food and fun and celebration and, and song and dance and laughter. And we're not taking it in. And hopefully, look, this is in no, in no way do I mean to um, say that the death of a million people was worth what I'm about to say. It wasn't. I wish we knew nothing of the pandemic's lessons, but we had those million people back. But we don't get to choose, right? We have to give up on the idea of a better past. And I often say to people, if you have to go through hell, if you have to go through hell, do not come out empty-handed. So let's not come out of this pandemic empty-handed. Let's remember what it was like to be home more, to be in traffic less, to, to bake and cook together more and shop less, to um, limit our social engagement, the frenzy of it all, to limit it to the handful of people, and none of us have more than a handful, who really matter, who really bring us some meaning and purpose yeah. in life. When I come across references to how healthy the Mediterranean diet is and people, the researchers look at the food that people are eating, mm -hmm. but I think what you're just talking about, like that's, that's why people who eat the Mediterranean diet are so healthy. Yeah. Cause that's, they're together with three generations around yes. the table. That's right. Yeah, and they cook yeah. together too. My guest is best-selling author, Steve Leader, and he's written a book for you when I'm gone. 12 Essential Questions to Tell a Life Story. We'll be back to continue our conversation after a break. I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with my guest, best-selling author, Rabbi Steve Leader, and his most recent book is For You When I'm Gone, 12 Questions to Tell a Life Story. 
Well, another point you make, and this is a, a later chapter in What Makes You Happy, you say happiness is really togetherness. Yes. It is who, not what, that makes us happy. Well, so this is the common denominator of that question. There is a level of happiness or joy that one cannot experience alone. The highest levels of happiness and joy contain two essential ingredients. Number one, they're communal. Dancing alone is not the same as dancing with your friends. Secondly, joy is the fruit of a slow-growing tree. In other words, well, let me ask you, what is the difference between a friend's accomplishment, celebrating a friend's accomplishment, a graduation, a business victory versus celebrating your own accomplishment? The difference is you're happy for your friend, but you are overjoyed with your family and friends about your own accomplishment because you sacrificed to achieve it. And, you know, this is why parents are so overjoyed at the wedding of their child, even if they're not crazy about the son-in-law or daughter-in-law, <laughs> is, you know, they've raised that child over weeks and months and years and decades of sacrifice and effort and worry and joy. And that's what makes that moment such a supreme moment in life. So happiness, real happiness. We're not talking about eating ice cream or, you know, watching your team score a goal. We're talking about real happiness into the marrow of our bones. That comes when we're part of a community that celebrates with us. And we have invested the sacrifice of our love and care and heart and soul into the end result. My guest is Rabbi Steve Leader. His newest book is For You When I'm Gone, 12 Essential Questions to Tell a Life Story. And we've gone over what you included in Chapter 1, What Do You Regret? Any other um, answers that impressed you when you asked people this question? Well, honestly, the questions elicited amazing answers, all 12 of them. But um I think one that was really instructive in terms of, again, its commonality is the second to last question, which is, what do you want your epitaph to be? You know, it, it's not surprising that I spend a lot of time in cemeteries. I have a, you know, 10,000 person congregation. So I'm in the cemetery pretty much every week and sometimes multiple times a week. And I'm always struck by this. Despite the fact that we're all unique individuals, we all lead unique lives. There is a remarkable commonality, almost unanimity of inscriptions, epitaphs on headstones. They almost all say the same thing, despite the uniqueness of our lives. And what do they all say? Not your zip code, not your net worth, not your GPA, not your grandchild's GPA, not your resume, none of it. They all say almost exactly the same thing. Loving husband, father, grandfather, brother, friend. Loving wife, mother, grandmother, sister, friend. Pick any of them. But that's it. Because when you have to distill the real purpose and meaning in your life down to 15 characters per line and only four lines total, you are engaged in a very, very powerful form of essentialism. You really strip it down to what matters and discover that it's not a what at all. As you quoted in the book that I said, it is not what we have, but who we have that matters. And this is also a very powerful opportunity to ask if we're aligned, are our professed values is our end goal, which is what will be our epitaph, going to be achieved with the way we're actually living our lives? Or do we need to make a change? Well, we've mentioned that you ask a lot of different people these very questions. And you were, I won't say exactly apologetic, but maybe 
you ask them thinking they're doing you a favor mm-hmm. to answer these questions for your yes. book? Yes. And what did you find to be the case? The opposite. I really thought, oh, I'm going to impose on these 40 people. They're busy people, and they may not think of themselves as writers, but they're not going to want to say no to me, et cetera, et cetera. And what I found in every case when people sent their responses back to me, it came with an email that said something like, this was an incredible experience for me. I am so glad you asked me to do this. Thank you. Thank you for encouraging me to to look deeply into my own life. And I think what comes of that are two things. I think people really, first of all, I think we all really do want to tell our story. We just don't quite know how. And this book is a way for me to hold your hand and and enable you to tell your story, the truth of your story. And the second thing, of course, which we keep coming back to, so important, is people really do want an opportunity to reflect upon whether or not they're living their truth. Well, um, the... (laughs) The third chapter, you ask people to consider what makes you happy. And that seems like an obvious question, but I realized when I was growing up, I never asked myself, well, what do I want to do? I was always, what have I got to do now? I've got to do this. I've got to do that. My list was always, what do I have to do? Mm-hmm. And it never occurred to me to ask myself, well, what do I want to do? Yes, it's interesting. It's the opposite challenge of that 94% that's in the present waiting for something to happen in the future, right? You can also be too in the present, too busy checking boxes on your list and not really living. You can run errands your whole life. And I, by errands, I mean that in the broadest sense. And, and that's a horrible way to live, horrible. If you don't have transcendent experiences, uh, if you don't take the opportunity to pause and reflect and ask ask yourself, is this really what I want? You know, sometimes I ask people when they come to my office, sit on what I call my couch of tears. They're looking, they're looking at me, kind of uh, wondering whether or not to make some dramatic change in their lives. And I ask them, did you really want what you wanted? Did you really want what you wanted? And they often shake their head and say, no. So it's a very powerful question to ask of ourselves. Do I really want what I say I want? Really? And I think parents should consider the pressure they put on their children. I mean, I know a cardiologist who, he loved music. And I don't think he wanted to be a cardiologist. In my imagination, his parents said, Steve, you should be a cardiologist. And... And I think people are often putting pressure on their children to yes. to live what would make the parents happy. Yeah, they're not honoring their child's blueprint. They're honoring the blueprint they wish their child had. And that's cruel. There's no other word for it. It's cruel. And it ends up in a damaged adult. And I so admire parents who recognize what the child is interested in from a young age. Say, well, this is not what my dream is, but my young boy likes, you know, fill in the blank, and that they support that decision. Maybe the kid says, you know, I don't want to go to college. Yes. And so many parents know you're going to college. Yes. You know, one of the biggest mistakes my wife and I made as parents, and we were young, was when in kindergarten, our son's kindergarten teacher at the end of the year at the parent-teacher conference said, you know, he's not, he's not really ready to move on to first grade. He's not interested in the other things the kids are interested in. All he wants to do is play with blocks. And we think he should repeat kindergarten. And we said, okay. And then he had the same issue in first grade, second grade, third grade. I wish I had had the maturity in that moment to turn to Betsy and say, you know what? Let's go find a school where he can play with blocks all day if he wants to. But we didn't. And so we ended up with a kid who was miserable in school. And we we caught it but it took us three or four years too long to catch it because we too got sucked into the whole idea of a brand <laughs> of what's best of what's supposed to be. And it can happen to all of us. It does happen to all of us. 
the hope is that by considering questions like these, we can punctuate that equilibrium. We can disrupt that robotic kind of thinking and change our lives and the lives of the people we love. One thing you say in your chapter, What Makes You Happy, you say, it's hard to say I'm sorry, but even harder to say I was wrong. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. I think those are the three hardest words for human beings to say. It's not I am sorry because, you know, I am sorry has a lot of wiggle room in it. Mm -hmm. there, there's often another sentence to follow. I am sorry that you think I might have, or I'm sorry you feel as if, I'm sorry you feel, it, mm -hmm. you know, there, there's a, it, it's kind of a half apology. Mm -hmm. And then there, there's this old Yiddish saying I love, which is a half truth is a whole lie, right? <laughs> so, you know, but saying I was wrong is to really own it. Full stop. I was wrong. Full stop. That's, that's how we pave the way for reconciliation. That's how we pave the way for greater happiness. Well, you make the point, too, that if we can talk about it, we can manage it. And mm -hmm. sometimes these feelings are so deeply buried that we, we don't recognize we're operating on these subconscious feelings, if we want to say right. that. So you say, if we can talk about it, we can manage it. I think that's something your book will help with. I, I hope so. That's certainly, certainly my intention. And, you know, talking about it is also something that ideally is, is not done alone. You know, the, the sages in the Talmud say the prisoner cannot free himself. That's a very powerful idea. One of the things that comes out most in the questions about regret and failure is how long people waited to reach out for help and what a difference it made when they finally did. And I included, I include myself in that group. I waited far too long to reach out for help. I have an underlying anxiety disorder that I subordinated through just a brutal work ethic my whole life since the time I was five years old. And during COVID, it just flew out of the basement of my psyche. The door just flung open and the demons came out and I was really paralyzed. And it forced me to reach out for help. And that help has made my life so much better. My marriage is better. My relationships are better. I think I'm a better rabbi. I think I'm a better brother, a better friend. And it took me 55 years mm. to reach out. I'm often grateful that I have lived as long as I have because it took me this long to learn a lot of these lessons you're talking yeah. about. Yes. And don't you want to share them with the people you love? Absolutely. Yeah. Now, um, I would like to ask you then about chapter four. Sure. You say, what was your biggest failure? Mm -hmm. In every single case, the failure is not really ultimately a failure because it led to some extraordinary success. So if you ask the opposite question, what is your greatest success or what are you the most proud of? Very often the answer will be something deeply rooted in a previous failure or mistake. Even something as simple as I asked someone uh, on an Instagram live yesterday this question. I said, what was your biggest failure? And she said, well, I had a lot of really, really crappy boyfriends when I was younger. And I said, well, what's your greatest success? And she said, my, my husband and my boys. And I said, how did that occur? She said, well, through all that failure. When I met him, I said to myself, ah. This, this is what it's like. This is what it's supposed to be. So that success is deeply rooted in, in a lot of pain and failure. So failure ultimately is not failure. It's a step on, on the path to great satisfaction and success. And this goes back to one of the larger themes of the book, which is, None of us can have a better past 
but we can use the past to have a much better present and future. And that's really beautiful. You know, I think of the professors who don't get tenure at the university where they think they want tenure. Yes, that's one and, of the people in the book. That's right. <laughs> and that's I right. personally know of this case, and the person goes on to have a happier life when they didn't, when they failed at what they thought they wanted. That's right. That's right. And, you know, I often say to parents, I already mentioned we have a couple of elementary schools as part of our congregation. And I often say to parents who are disappointed with where their child is going next because they didn't get accepted to their first choice middle school, which sounds crazy, but that's life in Los Angeles. And I often say to them, look, that first choice school has done you a favor. Your kid doesn't belong there. I have a kid who went to a school he didn't belong in, and it it really damaged his, him in childhood and adulthood. That school has done you a favor. This failure is a gift. This failure is a, is a win. It's not a failure at all. It's a win. Now, let's, let's get going forward. And it's the truth. And again, I'm not here to tell you that it's worth all this suffering, worth this pain and disappointment, but I can promise you it is not worthless. There is a good outcome waiting behind every apparent failure. And that's a lesson we want to share because that builds resiliency, that builds faith. After a break, Rabbi Leader and I will be back to continue our conversation about his most recent book, For You When I'm Gone, 12 Essential Questions to Tell a Life Story. I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with my guest, Rabbi Steve Leader, and he presents us with 12 essential questions to tell our life story. And you just mentioned that what we first view, oh gosh, this is a failure, but then it turns out not to be. And so then you, you ask a question, chapter five, what got you through your greatest challenge? And again, what do we discover just like happiness? It's much better when you're not going it alone. What got most people through their most difficult time was another person who showed up and reached out a hand and helped lift them from their sorrow. And it goes back to your point, which I had never thought about before, but I think is really quite powerful which has to do, <clears throat> excuse me, with the longevity of people who are eating a Mediterranean diet and that it has something to do with the diet, but probably much more to do with the fact that they're gathered around the table together with a lot of people they love. So to me, it's not the food choices, but the people right. choices. That's right. Yeah. It's the choice not to go it alone. You know, there's that old African saying, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. It's really true. It's really true. Well, you mentioned in this chapter, uh, what got you through your greatest challenge. You say, identify the values you hold most dear and ask yourself if you're living in alignment with those values. And yeah, to because make a plan sometimes to realign your life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because some sometimes 
there, there are two parts to that question, you know, is what's happened a result of my values, my real values, because sometimes that enables us to withstand the criticism or the pain, knowing, knowing, look, this happened to me um, uh, about a year and a half ago. I made the decision to help someone privately who I felt deserved a second chance. And a lot of people reached out to criticize me. But I knew I had done the right thing. I knew it in my bones. And that enabled me to keep going and have faith in the future despite, you know, people who wanted to cancel me. So living aligned with our values is an important way of getting through difficult things. Knowing you did the right thing really makes a difference. That's, that's the first thing. And knowing you didn't live in alignment with your values is also a very powerful directional force in life because that's when we can say, I was wrong. I wasn't true to who I really am. And I'm never going to do that again. That's a win. I remember the story of a guy who was hiking with his backpack and this Maasai warrior with just his spear and the Maasai warrior said, well, what do you have? What are you carrying around in that pack? And so he spread it out very proudly to show him what he had. And the warrior said, does all this make you happy? And I think that's what you're saying. It isn't the things, but the people. Well, and, and this is the meta purpose of the book, right? Because we all at a certain age spend a lot of time and effort and money on an attorney and we create an estate plan and a legal will to decide who's going to get our stuff when we're gone who's going to get it how much of it and when thinking believing that somehow the material will express the emotional and the spiritual and i say to people all the time that is like handing your loved ones a picture of food <laughs> It's not real. It's not going to nourish and sustain them. What's going to nourish and sustain them? It's not your stuff. It's your values, your words, your guidance, your blessing, your love. That's what people need and want when you're gone. And you need to create a parallel document, which I, in the book I call an ethical will answer these questions and write this down. This is your story. This is your truth. Write it down for the people you love for when you're gone and write it down for yourself now so you can live your truth. And that's, you know, I'll tell you something interesting. In the Hebrew Bible, the word for word and the word for thing is the same word. Same word. I found that fascinating. Yeah. You cannot differentiate between the two. And what does this mean? This means that from a psycholinguistic standpoint, words are concrete. They are real. They can build up. They can tear down. And I'll, I'll do you one further. In, in You know that phrase that magicians use, abracadabra? Mm -hmm. That comes from the Talmud. It's an Aramaic phrase. Avra Kedavra, which means I create as I speak. And our words, our words are far more valuable and important to our loved ones than any kind of fountain pen or paperweight collection or, you know, bags or purses or whatever. One of the saddest memories of my life was walking down into the basement of my parents' townhouse in Minneapolis after my dad died and seeing all of his stuff in a heap on the floor, just a 
pile in the, on the basement floor. Nobody wanted it. Even Goodwill didn't want most of it. But that, that wasn't my dad. You know, the one thing, I have, I have a couple things from my dad that I really cherish. And what are they? They're two old rusty tools from his toolbox. They would be worth zero on eBay. But they mean everything to me because they remind me of going to work with my dad on Saturdays when I was a little boy. And, you know, first we'd stop for pancakes at the Town Talk Diner. And then we'd go to work fixing things, you know, in his buildings. And and then we'd go to lunch at Cafe Di Napoli and have mascarpone and meatballs. And, and that's, it's time. Those tools are just a vessel of, of memories. They're not valuable in any kind of monetary way, but they're priceless. Time, again, is priceless. So let's leave our loved ones. <clears throat> What's far more precious than, than any material thing? Let's not leave them a picture of food. Let's leave them our words. Let's nourish them. I have a neighbor who has a little boy, and he spends so much time with his little boy that I think, you know, when he grows up, he's going to remember these times. I don't know if even the dad realizes how meaningful that can be to this young boy when he gets older. Yes. And I just think that is so sweet yes. that he gives his son his time. Well, and I'll, I'll, as an older dad, I'm 62 years old and my son is 33 years old. As we grow older, we too, as parents, will appreciate those, those moments. Mm. I think back so often and meaningfully. It warms me, literally, to think back on all those Little League games and rocket launches and fishing trips and, uh, you know, just laughing at silly movies together, those kinds of things. It's interesting, you know, when I sit with families during these intake meetings to prepare for funerals, it's kind of the same lesson as the, as the epitaph chapter. What the adult children remember from their childhoods, it's not the big stuff. It's not, it's not what mom or dad did for a living or their resume or what car they drove. It's these tiny moments which seem small, but looms so large in our hearts forever. My guest is Rabbi Steve Leader, and we're talking about his latest book. He poses 12 questions, 12 essential questions to tell a life story. And we've mentioned the word love has come up. You have a chapter asking the question, what is love? Yes. It's a hard thing to describe. It's kind of like when Justice Potter Stewart was asked to describe obscenity by the Supreme Court to define it. And he said, <laughs> I can't define it, but I know when I see it, right? And people will say that about love. I can't define it, but I know when I feel it. Well, you actually can define it if you work at it. And what is common to these definitions is really interesting and, and, and counterintuitive. What we discovered in the answers, what I discovered in the answers about what is love in my own life and in the answers of the other 40 people, we didn't include all 40 in each chapter, of course, was that most people think that we sacrifice for the people we love. And most people's understanding of sacrifice is as a kind of net loss. We, we even use it in our in our phrasing of the concept, we say, oh, she made so many sacrifices, or he, he made the ultimate sacrifice, meaning he gave his life. And we tend to think of sacrifice as, as this net loss, when in fact, what we discover when we ask what is love, we find out, well, let's, let's practice, okay? I'm going to ask you the question. What are the two things and you can group family as one if you want to. What are the two things you love the most in your life that mean the most to you? The two things. I know there are many more, but let's talk about the top two. Well, the person that is closest to me. And who is that? <laughs> I'd rather not say. Okay, actually. but you have someone because, in mind. Well, um, I'll tell you that... Um, 
one reason a lot of your book was important to me is that um, I was married for 45 years and my dear husband, we had two months to say goodbye because he was suddenly diagnosed with cancer. Oh my goodness. First told oh. me the, the morning that she took me aside and said, don't be by yourself tonight. She mm. could see that he was close to the end, but I couldn't see it. I was denying. No, he, he can't. Yeah. Yeah. He, he can't be dying. And so. Um, but it was him, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Your husband, that beautiful man. He was. Yeah. And, and what was, what's second? Well, um, one person in this chapter, What is Love, said that he or she learned unconditional love from his dogs. Yes. Right. And I, I, uh, I loved, have had serial five dogs in my life. And, yeah. And I love those little creatures. Oh, yes. Now, <laughs> let me ask the next question. What are the two people, things that you have sacrificed the most for in your life? It's hard because I don't feel like I've made sacrifices. Um, given, given the most to. Given the um, most of yourself to. My husband. Yes. And those beautiful dogs, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Now, what do, what have we discovered about love? <laughs> we have we have discovered that it's not that we sacrifice because we love someone. We love someone or something because we sacrifice. That sacrifice is not a net loss or a negative. It is a gain. We do not become poorer by giving. We become profoundly richer by giving. I certainly see. That is love. I think that's a perfect note to leave on, Rabbi Leader, about love. I would remind readers the title of your book. You pose 12 essential questions to tell a life story the title of the book for you when i'm gone thank you so much for writing this book and encouraging us to think about the questions that are important in life thank you rabbi leader you're you're so welcome it's been an honor you've been listening to nancy's bookshelf production of North State Public Radio. You can find this and other episodes of Nancy's Bookshelf on our website, mynspr.org.